Section twelve of Celebrated Travels and Travellers, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. Celebrated Travels and Travellers, Volume Two, Great Navigators of the Eighteenth Century by Jules Verne. First Part, Chapter Three, Part One. Captain Cook's First Voyage. 1b on the seventh of july preparations for departure began in a short time the doors and palings were removed and the walls demolished at this moment one of the natives who had received the english with cordiality came on board with a young lad of about thirteen years of age who acted as his servant his name was tupia formerly first minister to queen oberia he was afterwards one of the principal priests of Tahiti. He asked to be allowed to go to England. Many reasons combined to decide Cook upon permitting this. Thoroughly acquainted, as a necessary consequence of his high functions, with all the particulars concerning Tahiti, this native would be able to give the most circumstantial details of his compatriots, and at the same time to initiate them into the civilized customs of the Europeans. Finally, he had visited the neighboring islands and perfectly understood the navigation of those latitudes on the thirteenth of july there was a crowd on board the endeavour the natives came to bid farewell to their english friends and to their countrymen tupia some overcome with silent sorrow shed tears others on the contrary uttered piercing cries with less of true grief than of affection in their demonstrations in the immediate neighborhood of Tahiti were to be found, according to Tupia, four islands, Huahiani, Ulaita, Otaha, and Bolabola. He asserted that wild pigs, fowls, and other needful provisions could easily be obtained there. These commodities had become scarce in the latter part of the stay at Maltavai. Cook, however, preferred visiting a small island called Tethurora, about eight miles north of Tahiti, but the natives had no regular settlement, and he therefore considered it useless to wait there. When they came in sight of Huahiaini, several pierogies approached the endeavour, and it was only after they recognised Tupia that the natives consented to come on board. King Oria, who was among the passengers, was greatly surprised at all the vessel contained. Soon reassured by the welcome of the English, he became so familiar as to wish to exchange names with Cook. During the entire stay in port, he always called himself Cookie, and gave his own name to the captain. Anchor was cast in a conventional harbor, and the officers of this vessel on landing found the manners, the language, and the productions of this island identical with those of Tahiti. Seven or eight leagues southwest lay Ulaitia, Cook landed there also, and solemnly took possession of this and the three neighboring islands. He also profited by his stay to make hydrographical surveys of the shores, whilst a leak which had been found in the gun-room of the Endeavour was attended to. After reconnoitring various other small islands, Cook gave the entire group the name of Society Isles. Cook sailed on the 7th of August. Six days later he reconnoitred the island of Oteroa, the hostile demonstrations of the natives prevented the endeavour from remaining. She set sail for the south. On the 25th of August, 
the anniversary of their departure from england was celebrated by the crew on the first of september in forty degrees twenty two minutes south latitude one hundred seventy four degrees twenty nine minutes east longitude the sea agitated by a west wind became very rough the endeavor was obliged to put her head to the north and to run before the storm up to the third the weather continued the same then it abated and it was possible to resume the westward route in a few days sundry indications of an island or continent appeared such as floating weeds land birds etc on the fifth of october the color of the sea changed and on the morning of the sixth a coast running west by northwest was perceived nearer approach showed it to be of great extent unanimous opinion decided that the famous continent so long looked for so necessary for the equipoise of the world known to cosmographers as the unknown land of the south was at last discovered this land was the eastern shore of the most northerly of the two islands which have received the name of new zealand smoke was perceived at different points and the details of the shore were soon mastered the hills were covered with verdure and large trees were distinguishable in the valleys then houses were perceived then pierogues then the natives assembled on the strand and lastly a palisade high and regularly built surrounded the summit of the hill opinions varied as to the nature of this object some declaring it to be a deer park others a cattle enclosure not to speak of many equally ingenious surmises which were all proved false when later it turned out to be a pa towards four o'clock in the afternoon of the eighth of october anchor was cast in a bay at the mouth of a little river on either side were white rocks in the middle a brownish plain rising by degrees and joining by successive levels a chain of mountains which appeared far in the interior such was the aspect of this portion of the shore cook banks and solander entered two small boats accompanied by a part of the crew as they approached the spot where the natives were assembled the latter fled this however did not prevent the english from landing leaving four lads to guard one of the boats whilst the other remained at sea they had proceeded only a short distance from the boat when four men armed with long spears emerged from the wood and threw themselves upon it to take possession of it they would have succeeded with ease had not the crew of the boat out at sea perceived them and cried out to the lads to let it drift with the current they were pursued so closely by the enemy that the master of the pinnace discharged his gun over the heads of the natives after a moment's hesitation the natives continued their pursuit when a second discharge stretched one of them dead on the spot his companions made an effort to carry him away with them but were obliged to abandon the attempt as it retarded their flight hearing the firing the officers who had landed went back to the vessel whence they soon heard the natives returning to the shore eagerly discussing the event still cook desired to have friendly intercourse with them he ordered three boats to be manned and landed with banks solander and tupia fifty or more natives seated upon the shore awaited them they were armed with long lances and an instrument made of green talc and highly polished a foot long which perhaps weighed four or five pounds this was the patu patu or toki 
a kind of battle-axe, in talc or bone, with a very sharp edge. All rose at once, and signed to the English to keep their distance. As soon as the marines landed, Cook and his companions advanced to the natives, whom Tupia told that the English had come with peaceful intentions, that they only wished for water and provisions, that they would pay for all that was brought them with iron, of which he explained the use. They saw, with pleasure, that the people, whose language was only a dialect of that spoken by the Tahitians, perfectly understood them. After some parleying, about thirty of the natives crossed the river. The strangers gave them iron and glasswares, on which they set no store, but one of them, having succeeded in possessing himself secretly of Mr. Green's cutlass, the others recommenced their hostile demonstrations, and it was necessary to fire at the robber, who was hit, when they all threw themselves into the river to gain the opposite shore. The various attempts at commercial intercourse with the people ended too unfortunately for Cook to persevere in them any longer. He therefore decided to find a watering-place elsewhere. Meanwhile, two pirogues, who were trying to regain the shore, were perceived. Cook took measures to intercept them. One escaped by rapid paddling, the other was caught, and although Tupia assured the natives that the English came as friends, they seized their weapons and commenced attacking them. A discharge killed four, and three others, who threw themselves into the sea, were seized after a fierce resistance. The reflections which this sad incident suggested to Captain Cook are much to his honor. They are in strong contradistinction to the ordinary method of proceeding then in vogue, and deserve to be repeated verbatim. I cannot disguise from myself, he says, that all humane and sensible people will blame me for having fired upon these unfortunate Indians, and I should be forced to blame myself for such an act of violence if I thought of it in cold blood. They certainly did not deserve death for refusing to trust to my promises, and to come on board, even if they suspected no danger. But my commission, by its nature, obliged me to take observations of their country, and I could only do so by penetrating into the interior, either by open force or by gaining the confidence and good will of the natives. I have tried unsuccessfully by means of presents, and my anxiety to avoid new hostilities led me to attempt having some of them on board as the sole method of persuading them that far from wishing to hurt them we were disposed to be of use to them. So far, my intentions were certainly not criminal. It is true that during the struggle, which was unexpected by me, our victory might have been equally complete without taking the lives of four of these Indians, but it must also be remembered that in such a situation the command to fire having once been given, one is no longer in a position to proscribe it, or to lighten its effect. The natives were welcomed on board with every possible demonstration, if not to make them forget, at least to make them less sensible of the pain of remembering their capture. They were loaded with presents, adorned with bracelets and necklaces, but when they were told to land, they all declared, as the boats were directed to the mouth of the river, that it was an enemy's country, and that they would be killed and eaten. However, they were put on shore, and there is no reason to suppose that anything painful came of their adventure. Next day, the 11th of October, Cook left this miserable settlement. He named it Poverty Bay, because of all that he needed, he had not been able to procure but one thing, wood. Poverty Bay, 
in thirty-eight degrees forty-two minutes south latitude and one hundred and eighty-one degrees thirty-six minutes west longitude is of horseshoe shape and affords good anchorage although it is open to the winds between south and east cook continued along the coast in a southerly direction naming the most remarkable points and bestowing the name of portland upon an island which resembled that of the same name in the english channel his relations with the natives were everywhere inimical if they did not break out into open outrage it was owing to the english patience under every provocation one day several pierogies surrounded the ship and nails and glassware were exchanged for fish when the natives seized Tayito, Tupia's servant, and quickly paddled off. As it was necessary to fire at the robbers, the little Tahitian profited by the confusion, and jumping into the sea was soon picked up by the pinnacle of the endeavor. On the 17th of October, Cook, not having been able to find a suitable harbor, and considering himself, as the sea became more and more rough, to be losing time which might be better employed in reconnoitering the northern coast, tacked round and returned the way he had come on the twenty third of october the endeavour reached a bay called tedago where no swell was perceptible the water was excellent and it was easy to procure provisions the more so as the natives appeared friendly after having arranged for everything for the safety of the workers messrs banks and solander landed and collected plants and in their walk they found many things worthy of note Below the valley, surrounded by steep mountains, arose a rock so perforated that from one side the sea could be seen through it, and from the other the long range of hills. Returning on board, the excursionists were stopped by an old man, who insisted upon their taking part in the military exercises of the country with the lance and the patau-patau. In the course of another walk, Dr. Solander bought a top, exactly resembling European tops, and the natives made signs to show him that he must whip it to make it go. Upon an island to the left of the bay, the English saw the largest pierogue they had yet met with. It was no less than sixty-eight feet long, five wide, and three feet six inches high. It had in front a sculpture in relief, of grotesque taste, in which the lines were spiral and figures strangely contorted. On the 30th of October, as soon as he was supplied with wood and water, Cook set sail and continued along the coast toward the north. Near an island, to which Cook had given the name of Mayer, the natives behaved most insolently, and were greater thieves than any previously encountered. It was, however, necessary to make a stay of five or six days in this district to observe the transit of Mercury. With a view to impressing upon the natives that the English were not to be eluzed with impunity, a robber who had taken a piece of cloth was fired upon with grape-shot, but although he received the discharge in the back, it had no more effect on him than a violent blow with a rattan. But a bullet which struck the water, and returning to the surface passed several times over the pierogues, struck such terror into the hearts of the natives that they hastily paddled to the shore. On the ninth of November, Cook and Green landed to observe the transit of Mercury. Green only observed the passing, while Cook took the altitude of the sun. It is not our intention to follow the navigators in their thorough exploration of New Zealand. The same incidents were endlessly repeated, and the recital of the similar struggles with the natives, with descriptions of natural beauty, however attractive in themselves, 
could not but pall upon the reader. It is better, therefore, to pass rapidly over the hydrographic portion of the voyage, in order to devote ourselves to our picture of the manners of the natives, now so widely modified. Mercury Bay is situated at the foot of the long-divided peninsula which, running from the east to the northeast, forms the northern extremity of New Zealand. On the 15th of November, as the Endeavour left the bay, several boats advanced towards her. Two of their number, says the narrative, which carried about sixty armed men, approached within hearing, and the natives began their war-song. But seeing that this attracted little attention, they began throwing stones at the English, and paddled along the shore. Soon they returned to the charge, evidently determined to fight the navigators, and encouraging themselves with their war-cry. Without being incited to it, Tupia addressed them reproachfully, and told them that the English had arms, and were in a position to overpower them instantly. But they valiantly replied, Come to land, and we will kill you all. Directly, replied Tupia, but why insult us as long as we are at sea? We have no wish to fight, and we will not accept your challenge, because there is no quarrel between us. The sea does not belong to you any more than to our ship. Tupia had not been credited with so much simple and true eloquence, and it surprised Cook and the other English. Whilst he was in the Bay of the Islands, the captain reconnoitred a considerable river, which he named after the Thames. It was shaded with trees, some of the same species as those on Poverty Island. One of them measured nineteen feet in circumference at the height of six feet above the ground. Another was not less than ninety feet long, from the root to the lowest branches. Although quarrels with the natives were frequent, the latter were not invariably in the wrong. Kippis relates as follows. Some of the men on board, who, after the Indians, had once been found in fault, did not fail to exhibit a severity worthy of Lycurgus, thought fit to enter a New Zealand plantation, and to carry off a quantity of potatoes. Captain Cook condemned them to a dozen stripes each. Two of them received them peaceably, but the third persisted that it was no crime for an Englishman to pillage Indian plantations. Cook's method of dealing with this causist was to send him to the bottom of the hold until he agreed to receive six additional stripes. On the 30th of December, the English doubled a cape, which they took to be that of Maria van Diemen, who discovered Tasman. But they were so assailed by threatening winds, that Cook only accomplished ten leagues in three weeks. Fortunately, they kept at a uniform distance from shore all the time, otherwise they should probably have been spared the recital of their further adventures. End of section 12